Let's take up our Bibles together once again this morning, turning them to the book of Hebrews chapter 9. We're now well over halfway through our study of the book of Hebrews, this wonderfully deep, refreshing water of the Word, most certainly the deep end of the theological pool, and in such proximity, such vast heights and such great depths of truths that we're handling here. Let's start by following along as I read Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 22. According to the law, almost all things are purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heaven should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Shall we bow and pray? Father God, O oh Lord Jesus, take these words words that are the elucidation of the unfolding of your plan and purpose in salvation and let us understand. No, Lord, even more than understand, let us be wise with this word in appropriating it and in making it our own that we might live in faith upon it. Oversee what is said from this pulpit that it might be true and right with your word. Make no distortions between pulpit and pew and the hearer here. Let us also be doers of this word that our doing would be believing. Help us with our believing. We pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. We started chapter 9 and we've given it the overarching title, Adventures in the New Covenant. We started in the museum of the tabernacle of the Old Testament, went through the ministrations in the holy place and the most holy place in the Old Testament Mosaic Covenant tabernacle. We then progressed into a glimpse into heaven of the heavenly tabernacle the ministry of Jesus there, the obtaining of eternal redemption, the purging of our consciousness from 
dead works, the inheritance eternal, thereby testament and last will and testament of the testator Jesus Christ. And now, and now we go on to infinity and beyond. So some of you have already sniggered behind your breath because you are aware of the character in the movies that coined this tagline. This famous tagline to infinity and beyond belongs to a character from the movie Toy Story. In the movie Toy Story, a young boy has toys, the favorite of which is the cowboy Woody. And these toys come alive at night or when the boy is not present in the room. But then a very dangerous new addition is made to the toy box on Christmas, I believe it was, or some such birthday, who knows what it was. Some of you probably do and can correct me later. And he receives a new toy, Buzz Lightyear, an astronaut with his own wings, a pull string in which he cites this tagline, to infinity and beyond. Now, the movie we come to understand that Buzz is not the sharpest knife in the drawer at NASA, we might say. And so his statement is somewhat foolish, ill-informed, because we know that infinity is, of course, infinite. And how do you get beyond infinity? Well, I'm glad you asked. To infinity and beyond. So what could be beyond infinity, even infinite? Well, only God. God is infinite, beyond infinite, beyond anything that we can even define. We can't define infinity. Of course, there have been definitions of it. You may read them if you like. I hope they help you. They help me not. Not even a little bit. It's just beyond us. And I'm afraid that that's sometimes what happens to us when we get into the parameters of infinite work of Jesus Christ in deliverance from sin. We are confounded by our finitude. We are finite. We are not infinite. But the deliverance from sin that is here on our page today, which Jesus Christ provides, is infinite. Here in our text, the writer of Hebrews will take us to infinity and beyond in displaying four out-of-this-world provisions that result from Christ's sacrifice for our sins. Four out-of-this-world provisions that result from Christ's sacrifice for our sins. And the reason being so that we may walk in infinite confidence. Infinite confidence that our sin is eternally dealt with by Christ once 
for all. That is the goal of this passage. That is my goal as I preach through it. By the way, I don't intend to hit this nail on the head just today. I shall drive it halfway in today, or almost so, and next week I'm going to drive it the rest of the way in. And I say it that way because many of us struggle here. Believing. Placing our faith. We're just about ready to enter into where we'll be called upon to live by faith. And keep our confession. Hold to our confession of Jesus Christ. Those things will be related again. They've been given to us in a various uh, different places here, but this one today, I pray it will affect you. His infinite deliverance from sin. Verse 22 again. And according to the law, almost all things are purged with blood. And without blood, well, excuse me, without the shedding of blood, there is no Remission. So we're going to see this morning four provisions that result from his infinite deliverance. His infinite deliverance. First, number one or letter A in your notes, his infinite deliverance provides infinite purification from sin. His infinite deliverance, the infinite deliverance of Jesus Christ provides infinite purification from sin. According to the law, almost all things are purged with blood. Our connection to the Old Testament and the Mosaic system is being contrasted and brought forward. Even under Moses, the tabernacle, all of the instruments for the worship of God, and even the priests themselves and all who minister must of needs be before they approach a holy God purified, cleansed from their uncleanness, which points to their sinful condition and the condition of man even being around the tabernacle and the instruments being a defilement because where man goes, sin goes. The infinite purification from sin by Jesus is then contrasted to the finite purification of the law. Number one, the finite purification of the law. Finite means to be limited. Infinite we can't define. Finite we can. It means it doesn't go on forever. It isn't all-encompassing. It isn't beyond our scope. It is limited to what we can see and know. So was the law, the law of Moses. It was incomplete. It was a tutor to prepare God's people for their maturity to follow this. The finite or the short duration of the purification of the law. As soon as they're purified, dirty again. But let me just highlight a few as it's important to go back to the Old Testament to set the context of this. According to the law, almost all things are purged with blood. Note, if you turn in your Bibles to Exodus, the 29th chapter. 
verse 20 even gives us the dictates from God to Moses of how Aaron and his sons, the high priest and the successors as high priest, should be purified before they minister the law of God. Verse 20 of Exodus 29, Then you shall kill the ram, take some of its blood, and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron, on the tip of the right uh, ear of his sons, on the thumb of their right hand, and on the big toe of their right foot, and sprinkle the blood all around the altar. The purification rites, how they hear, how they use their hands, how they walk with their feet, all aspects of their ministration to be purified. And not only that, all around them, the blood. The purification by blood. In Exodus 29, now skipping down to verse 36, we see here the reality of verse 23 in Hebrews chapter 9 that it is necessary that the copies of these things in the heavens should be purified with blood in this way. Note, verse 36, Exodus 29, And you shall offer a bull every day as a sin offering for atonement. You shall cleanse the altar. When you make atonement for it. Did you catch that? Cleanse the altar when you make atonement for it. And you shall anoint it to sanctify it. That means to set it apart for God. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and sanctify it. And the altar shall be, listen, most holy. It's holy. is to be set apart for God, but it must be purified. Listen, why, whatever touches the altar, which is holy, must be holy, must be purified, without blemish, without spot, without taint, free of any uncleanness, free of defilement. The priest must be purified. The altar must be purified. Anything that touches the altar must be purified by blood. A people who go to worship God at the tabernacle, also known as the tabernacle of meeting, where they would meet with God, very God, his presence was inside the whole, most holy place, they also must be purified. Leviticus chapter 9 and verse 18 highlights that reality. He also killed the bull and the ram as sacrifices of peace offerings which were for the people. That peace is between God and man. Not peace between the people themselves. Between God and man. That's what man, the person that man has problems with is God. The person, the people that God has problems with is man because of sin. No peace because of sin. So peace offerings are made which are for the people and Aaron's sons presented to him the blood, listen, which he sprinkled all around the altar. All must be purified, and that's just a quick smattering of some of the purifications that are referenced here in Hebrews 9.22. But 9.22 goes on to say, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. You know, one of the great things about this verse is Many people can quote this verse. Isn't that right? Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. 
But what is sad about knowing this verse, oftentimes, is that the context around this verse is not brought forward with it. It is important to say that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And by the way, what does remission mean? That's kind of another one of those 25-cent words that only pastors like. But it means, in simplicity, there is no forgiveness. For the forgiving of sins, there must be the shedding of blood. It's a requirement. And in thinking about how and where in the Old Testament to bring some of this forward, I had many more texts compiled than I could possibly get through in a standard period of time, which of course is minutes. And uh, so I decided to just stay in one place in the book of Leviticus and give you highlights from the trespass offering. From the trespass offering, Leviticus 5, beginning in verse 1. So a trespass is one who has made an error, overstepped the law of God, and in many cases even having done it ignorantly. And even in those cases, I thought this was most powerful because it shows you that even if you did something that you didn't know you did, there was a need for forgiveness and blood under the Old Testament law. Leviticus now, 5 verse 1. If a person sins in the hearing, the utterance of an oath, and is a witness, whether he has seen or known of the matter, if he does not tell it, he bears guilt. Or if a person touches an unclean thing, whether it is the carcass of an unclean beast, or the carcass of unclean livestock, or the carcass of unclean creeping things. Notice that's dead, dead, dead. The idea of death and uncleanness going together. And he is unaware of it. And he is unaware of it. He also shall be unclean and guilty. So even if you don't know you touched, even if you don't know what you heard, guilt. Or if he touches human uncleanness, whatever uncleanness with which a man may be defiled, and he is unaware of it, when he realizes it, then he shall be guilty. Or if a person swears, speaking thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or to do good, whatever it is that a man may pronounce by an oath, and he is unaware of it, when he realizes it, then he shall be guilty in any of these matters. And it shall be, when he is guilty in any of these matters, that he shall confess that he has sinned in that thing, and he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord for his sin which he has committed, a female of the flock, a lamb or a kid of the goats, as a sin offering. Notice, unaware, guilt, sin offering must be made. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin. Now even the poor, notice this, this is where there is a very interesting feature of this. And if he's not able to bring a lamb, that means he's too poor, then he shall bring to the Lord for his trespass, which he has committed, two turtle doves or young pigeons, one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering. He shall bring them to the priest who shall offer that which is for the sin offering. First, 
and wring off its head with its neck, but it shall, but shall not divide it completely. Listen, then he shall sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar, and the rest of the blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. The sin of man, the sin of Israel, the constancy of the law drives home like a stake through the heart of living man the extent of their guiltiness, even in their unaware things. Many times man tries to get away from guilt in the unknown capacities, doesn't he? Men want to say, well, I didn't know the law, therefore I can't be guilty of the law. Now you just try that when the highway patrolman pulls you over for speeding and tell him, well, I didn't know that the speed had been reduced here in this section of road. And I am just certain he's going to say, well, then of course go your way. The law doesn't apply to you. It only applies to those who know about the law or know that they've actually broke the law. Well, that's not true on the highways, and it's not true especially with a holy God. And he tells them, you're guilty. So the law is a killer in the sense that it goes right to your heart. And even when you come to the realization, oh my goodness, I swore by an oath, and I'm not supposed to swear, or I heard somebody swearing, and I didn't call them on that fact. Or I sinned and was guilty and didn't know, and now I know, what do I do, what do I do? You must shed blood. If you want sin forgiven, blood must be shed. The requirement of cleansing blood for that defilement is pounded home. It is driven home by the law. Remember verse 22. Under the law, without blood, there is no remission. There is no forgiveness. Therefore, listen to me now, pay attention. If you want to go to infinity and beyond, if you want to put your faith in something that is infinite, beyond so, in the deliverance of Christ from sin, you must listen. Therefore, law-keeping without blood sacrifice equals no remission, no forgiveness, only punishment remains. To try and keep all of the law without the sacrificial element of it, guilt is in place. So you who say in your heart, I keep the Ten Commandments, so God will forgive me. I say to you, no. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. There is no forgiveness. You can keep all the Ten Commandments your entire life and die in your sin, for blood is necessary to wash away the guilt and the punishment and to render you forgiven. And I say to you who are within the sound of my voice, who dislike this, this faith about which I speak, 
about this religion that is so bloody all the time. You say in your hearts, well, I don't want a God that would require blood. I love animals. I love the creatures of the world. And I would not even think to sacrifice in my place some poor, helpless lammy pie or some helpless dove. I will bear my own guilt. And I say to you, yes, you shall. You will not be forgiven. And those creatures were made by God who is requiring them to die on behalf of the law as a provision for you. And so you're not only in denial of his grace, but you lack the thanksgiving of God who put them there for you. You will die for yourself. And you modern ones who are out there in the world that declare that how could a true father sacrifice his son and who call it a form of deified child abuse. You think there aren't some that say that? You need to read the liberal commentators on the Bible. They say exactly that. And to you I would say, who say that the dying of Christ on the cross and the shedding of his blood is not something that you would allow any God that you would follow to do. I say to you, you are unclean. You are impure. You are unforgiven. For even under the law, it tells us and has taught us for centuries that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness whatsoever. Therefore, it is ludicrous. It is ludicrous to try to gain God's forgiveness by your works without bloodshed. Christians, I hope you are listening to me today because some of you have been doing this. Let's just admit it. All of us have been doing this. We bargain with God at times, don't we? Say, oh, no, I've realized my guilt, or, oh, I went ahead and did it anyway, knowing it was sin, and then we'll say something to God, well, when I go to church this Sunday, I'm really going to listen. When I pray today, I'm really going to pray. Oh, and then I'm going to do some good today. I'm not just going to be so selfish. Uh, tomorrow, I promise to think of others. And in a sense, we're bargaining with God, very God, for forgiveness, aren't we? Sometimes we'll even say, Lord, forgive me. And then we'll try and do something to ensure he's forgiven us. Well, I say to you, Christian, that's a vain work. Just here in our near context, says Jesus Christ has purged your conscience from dead works. And in chapter 6, where he was rebuking them that they should have been teachers in chapter 5, excuse me, and then in chapter 6, he says the most elementary principles of all the teachings in the Bible were these. 6.1, they're leaving the discussions of the elementary principles, let us go on to perfection. Not laying again the foundation, listen, the very first on the list a foundation to have if you're a Christian is 
laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. We love dead works. It's in us to want dead works. We started dead. We like to stay dead. But in trying to work for forgiveness on our own, we are rendering ourselves unforgiven. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And don't think to go home and poke yourself with a pin and drop a few bloods out of drops of blood out of you and say, There, I shedded some blood. I'm covered wrong. The shedding of blood here means the same thing that happened to that poor pigeon who had its head wrung off. You're dead. It means death. The bull that was brought died. The goat that was brought died. The lamb that was brought died and their blood was poured out. The shedding of blood means shedding unto death, not a pinprick or a cut. It is ludicrous to try and gain God's forgiveness by your works without bloodshed. So the going back to the law of Moses and trying to keep it is also ludicrous because you can't offer the sacrifices necessary for the external cleansing and forgiveness that was given in those days. And why are we trying that today? To be forgiven. How are we forgiven? To be forgiven, we place our faith, listen to me, we place our faith in the blood shed by Jesus on the cross for us. That is, the appropriate sacrificial offering to God in heaven for forgiveness. Purified by his blood. We sing the song, Are You Washed in the Blood? In the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb, are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? And some of you sing that and say, Well, I gotta go get my I gotta go get my garments spotless. I've got to be I've got to go be white as snow all of a sudden or I won't be forgiven. No, you missed the song. You believe that he did bleed and die. And it is in that you are putting your trust. You are putting your trust in the infinite purification of Christ's sacrifice number 2, the infinite purification of Christ's sacrifice. Verse 23. Therefore it was necessary necessary under the Mosaic law that the copies of the things in heavens that is the tabernacle and all that was used to minister there the original is in heaven should be purified with these, with blood, with animals. But on the other hand, in contrast to it, the heavenly things, that is in the heavenly tabernacle themselves, with better sacrifices than these, better than bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer in our context for the purification. So, when Jesus was establishing his communion, his Lord's table, his Lord's supper, whatever term you would like to use in Matthew 26. Verse 28, he says, for this is my blood. 
Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. He said, I want you to remember my blood with this symbol. For this is my blood of the new covenant, listen, which is shed for many. And then he said, for the remission of sin. For the remission of sins. For the forgiveness of sins. Why did he do this? What did he do? The infinite purification of Christ's sacrifice to infinity and beyond. In Acts chapter 13, Paul preaching to the Jews, to the Jews who know the law in their synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia. He says these words, and I quote them right from Acts 13, verse 38. Paul says, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, you Jews, that through this man, this Jesus, is preached to you, listen, the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. The law of Moses couldn't justify you. This does. How did you get there? By keeping the law? He says, no, and him, everyone who believes is justified. And Paul, and making the point even stronger later when he wrote the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 9, he said, much more then, having been justified by his blood. And justify is a, a legal term. It's a theological term. It's a legal term. It means to be rendered guiltless. Justified by the law. It's been paid with a price of blood justified by his blood, we shall be, listen, he goes on to say in verse 9, we shall be saved, listen, from wrath through him, Jesus Christ. We'll be saved from the wrath of God the Father, the holy judge of Israel, by the blood of Jesus Christ. By bloodshed is remission of sins. Without bloodshed, nothing God decides. Once again in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7, this great and glorious chapter all about how God saved you and not you yourself. Paul says in verse 7, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins through his blood. Redemption, which means to be purchased from slavery of sin and set free to follow Jesus to infinity and beyond. God did. You did not. We believe. Well, just how far did this sacrifice, did this bloodshed of Jesus go? I would note for you, the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Now what 
can you add to that? What do you think you have to offer? Nothing but pride. In humility we say, He said it's finished. I believe it's done. And I live on it by faith alone. John 19, 34. Remembering that almost all things are purged with blood according to the law. We read 19.34 that one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. Jesus provided infinite purification from sin he is a better sacrifice under a better law. God provides infinite deliverance from sin. Letter B. Secondly, the second provision of His infinite deliverance from sin is this. It provides infinite representation over sin. Infinite representation over sin. Verse 24, Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 24. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, i.e. not on this earth, not in the Mosaic tabernacle, not in the temple, not made with hands, which are copies of the true, but listen, into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God. Finish that for me. Finish that for me a little louder. Finish that for me a little louder. For who? For us. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Then you can go to infinity. And beyond. You will not be held by this finite world and your finite practices and your keepings of the law for your own sake of forgiveness. That's not why we do them. Don't worry, I'm going to tell you why we do them. About the middle of chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13. So don't worry. I'm not saying do nothing. I'm just saying don't do something and think you're getting forgiven for other things. It's not how it works. He provides infinite representation over sin because you see, he is appearing in heaven in the presence of God for us. That means on our behalf, he becomes our representative, our advocate. He's been called the mediator in this very chapter, nine verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 15. For this very reason, he is mediator of a new covenant. How? By means of death for redemption of the transgressions made under the first covenant. He is a mediator. You know, we're, we're Americans, right? 
how did America start? I mean, what was the biggie that we were worried about? You know, one of the biggies from before the Revolutionary War? What was that mantra that they all sang? No taxation without what? Representation. We know it. It's history. Kids, if you don't know it, come, I'm going to teach you again. No taxation without representation. You can't get into the pockets that I have where my money is kept and take some of it for yourself, you government people, without I having something to say about it, that somebody will represent my cause before you. No taxation without representation, King George. That's unjust. We know that's unjust. Well, the same, even more so, is true of God. If we know it's unjust to be judged, to have an expectation of payment from us without someone representing us, then that would be unjust. That would be condemnation without representation. How can I be condemned before God? I don't know him. I haven't had a chance to talk to him. He hasn't dealt with me. How do I know? Well, you see, a representative has been provided for you by God himself. God being the judge is even going to provide an advocate in his own court to stand there for you. And he's chosen the highest and the best and the smartest and the bravest and the most sacrificial. He has chosen his own son, Jesus Christ. Because you can't appear before God yourself lest you die. So in Hebrews 9, 8, the way in is now manifest. When he said the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was standing on earth. He is in heaven. The heavenly things themselves purified with better sacrifices than these. Jesus is appearing there and he's even in the presence of God for us on our behalf. This isn't the first time Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews has brought this up. We have seen it in chapter 2. If we just turn back there briefly, we see in chapter 2, in verse 17, this glorious truth of Jesus. Therefore in all things he, Jesus, had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God. Listen, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That means to satisfy the wrath of God. He represents man to God because Jesus himself is a man. He had to be born of the Virgin Mary. He had to be born and live as a man so he could represent us in infinitude before God, very God. Even in Hebrews 5, verse 1, again, by way of repetition of our study, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men 
in things pertaining to God that he may offer, listen, both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He represents us to God. Verse 2, he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also beset by weaknesses. In his humanity, Jesus was weak. He grew tired. He grew hungry. He wept over Lazarus. He knew the mourning even over Israel. He lived as a man. He represents us as a man before God. Because of this, verse 3, Hebrews 5, he is required as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. Those were the high priests of old. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And also in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We have a representative in heaven offering the appropriate blood sacrifice for sin, and he did it once. And he remains an advocate today. And why was that necessary? I want to take us just briefly to not just be in the Old Testament for a description of the sin of man and the condition of man before salvation, before we would believe. I take you to Colossians. I want you to notice the intensity of these words, both noun and verb. The hostile, even aggressive words of the unsaved toward God and the attitudes therein. Paul pulls no punches when he relates the condition of man and the necessities and glories of the infinite representation offered by Jesus Christ. In Colossians 1 verse 19 we read, for it pleased the Father that in him, Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. So everything that was God and in God and of God and is God and is deity, Jesus was. And by him, listen, and by him, by Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven having, listen, made peace through the blood of the cross. Verse 21, and you who were once, here's those words, alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. These are the words. See, sin separates us from God, and that's exactly what he's talking about when he begins verse 20 of Colossians 1. He says, and by him to reconcile. As soon as he says reconcile, you know the word reconciliation. To reconcile two parties who are at odds, who are not in agreement, who in this case are even enemies. It requires someone to represent both sides. And that is what Jesus, the representative, does. He reconciles all things to himself by Jesus, whether things on earth or things in heaven. 
See, reconciliation reunites fallen man with holy God to the condition which God desires us to be in. How does reconciliation reunite? It reunites us from these conditions. You see those words alienated, enemies in your mind, estranged. When you're estranged from someone, like uh, kids might, I learned this a few years ago, and with the, the new tech stuff the kids do, and, the, and, and you adults too, and sometimes I do, but poorly. When you're talking to people on these different chat places and different ways of exchanging things, something can happen, and, and they call it ghosting. That you think you're having a good relationship, you're chatting away with your thumbs just going a mile a minute, sharing everything in your life. I went here, did that, and then all of a sudden, you're texting them, you're, you're tweeting them, you're doing all these different things, and all of a sudden, they're gone. They're just gone. And you wonder, what happened? I thought we were, I thought we were close. I thought we were communicating. I thought something was going on. And you know, that happens in the real world too. And I say real, mean face-to-face -face world. You know, when you go up there and you see someone in the grocery store and you notice all of a sudden they turn away and walk the other direction. Well, the first time that happens, you say, well, okay, they didn't see me. That happens. Second time that happens and you wave at them and they turn away, you think, well, there might be more here than I thought. You know, third time that happens and they still walk away, run to the other side of the store or, or leave, you start saying, I wonder if we're alienated. I wonder if there's something between us that I don't know about or maybe that I know about and I wish I didn't. That needs someone to come in and reconcile those parties and that's what this means reconciliation must reunite but how how is peace made between these two parties it can't be made with God without blood through the means of death that is how reconciliation is made and it takes a representative of both God and man to reconcile an enemy of God with the holy God and it takes the death of the representative. You who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he, Jesus, has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. Infinite representation. This is why Jesus, when he was hanging on the cross, cried out for all to hear, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani! My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He died, his blood shed to reconcile us, the wicked workers of iniquity, the enemies of God, with himself, God the Father, God the Son, providing the means 
of reconciliation, the representative, my representative is not me. Your representative is not you. And if any point you try and stand in the middle without Jesus Christ, your high priest, without saying blood, there's blood, I've got nothing, then you're wrong. We have to start thinking like Christians who believe that we're evangelical. That we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Apart from works, lest any man boast. Then we can be his workmanship who are created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. Because the purpose of this reconciliation by this infinite representation that takes us to infinity and beyond. Listen to the end of Colossians 1 in the body of his flesh through death listen to the purpose to present you holy that's cleansed from all sin not by yourself by his blood blameless that means without any faults without any blemishes without any corrosion of sin and irreproachable in his sight, or above reproach in his sight. That means flawless. That's why he always said, bring a lamb without blemish. Bring a heifer without blemish. Bring a, bring a bull without spot. And then he would say of his son, here's my son without spot or blemish who's dying for you. Are you reconciled to God this morning? Are you, are you, are you confident? Can you say when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there? Or are you going to say in your heart, well, I've got a few more good things to do and then maybe he'll let me in. Well, listen to me this morning, 2 Corinthians 5. I close here. I realize it's a mistake to say close. Don't close your Bibles. That just means hang on and don't miss this. Verse 17, 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled, listen, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us a ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Pay attention now, not imputing their trespasses to them as, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. Listen, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors of reconciliation. We are not ambassadors of law and justice. 
We are to plead with people, be reconciled to God. And the only way to do that is through the blood of Christ. Our ministry is to say, where you are at war with God, there can be peace through Christ. Where you're at disagreements with God, you can come freely before him through Christ. Because in verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 5, it says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Jesus now stands in the heavenly places for us. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that he might become the righteousness, that we might become the righteousness of God. Not that we are righteous, not that we have done enough good to please him because Jesus pleased him at all points. And so we can say, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there because I am saved to infinity and beyond. Let's pray. Blessed Father, O oh Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, purge our consciences of dead works. Let us embrace by faith this work of Jesus, his infinite deliverance from sin by his blood. We depend not on works that we have done, but we believe in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, our representative before God. And we trust that his promised inheritance to us is ours on that basis. Nothing to the cross we bring, simply to the cross we cling. Help us do that, Lord, and enjoy our Christian walk. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.